So uh, I got your Valentine's Day card. Kind of excited. It's been a few years since I've gotten a Valentine's Day card. Let's see what it says. You are my favorite Valentine. Roses are red. The night's almost gone. I'll mine your coal shaft, but the gas mask stays on. What the hell is Derek? Did you open the package? (laughs) It's my dick in a box. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just a ripped out heart, apparently. We have to be literal with these holiday slashers, I guess. Hell yeah. Cool. Yeah, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. And this week, we are going to be taking a dive off the beaten path, and we're going to be discussing the Irish late 80s early 90s shoegaze band my bloody valentine (laughs) wait hold on loveless is a great album we are discussing the 1981 canadian slasher my bloody valentine although the main character's accent is borderline irish in this movie so (laughs) (laughs) which yeah we'll we'll talk about that in a minute so yeah before that like always we will discuss some recommendations of horror other things that we have ingested over the last couple of weeks so movies books tv shows comics etc Derek, let's start with you bro what have you got for us i'm gonna start with a music recommendation i'm procrastinating i'm getting through the chelsea wolf stuff i apologize it's not chelsea wolf but randomly i just kind of wanted to listen to the demons soundtrack the italian horror <laughs> demons soundtrack from Demons 1985 that is directed by Lamberto Bava. Soundtrack is done by Claudio Simonetti. And uh, yeah, this soundtrack kind of fucking rules. You were the one who kind of told me about this movie originally, Aaron. Like when we first were digging into what Italian horror we wanted to do first, we threw around the idea of doing Demons. We haven't done Demons 1 or 2 yet, but we will. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of like find a film score that wasn't necessarily just John Carpenter. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but any time I've recommended horror film scores in the past, it's always been John Carpenter. So I kind of wanted to just dig into like why this is such a good soundtrack. And man, drum machine, baby. Fucking (laughs) drum machine, 1980s drum machine, synth pop kind of fucking rules. That shit's great. When I pulled up the album, there's three or four versions of Demon, like the title track. Was kind of disappointed when I first saw that, but then like each demo track was like a bit different and like 
I just listened to all of them and they all felt different enough that I was like, I dig going through this melody yet again for like the fourth time. And now it's, you know, oh, this is the bonus track from like his 1990s concert performance. And this is the demo track he had 1984 when he was still putting together the soundtrack. And it was cool to like hear the stripped down versions and other versions of that song. I will say like the soundtrack is really good. I was a little disappointed when I found out that it really passed like the demons or the demon title track. There wasn't as much drum machine synth wave as I was hoping. There was a lot more just kind of general horror score to it than I thought there would be. I was kind of hoping yeah. it was just drum machine all the way at, through. But well, there's like the weird interludes of heavy metal bits yep. that just jump in. Yep. And then there's the random pop songs in there. Yeah. And I listened specifically just to the OST from Claudia. I didn't actually listen to the like the entire soundtrack thing, yeah. that has like Billy Idol and Motley Crue and shit like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm sure like they fit well like in the movie and I'll enjoy it when we watch it. But I just kind of wanted to hear the composer's music and I'm a little disappointed it wasn't all just drum machine the way through because anytime I've heard songs that are inspired by demons, it's always heavy drum machine synth wave no matter who's doing it. Yeah. I didn't realize it was really just that one main track named Demon that uh, most people kind of get that vibe from. But I'm glad you pushed me into Italian horror when we started this podcast. It's always (laughs) fun to revisit it. And part of the reason it's so fun is the soundtracks are usually pretty outlandish for different ways. I don't think we've done Bava yet. We have not done a Bava yet any of the Bavas. Yeah, so we we need to do that. And I didn't realize reading through the soundtrack and the movie like that uh, Argento actually helped produce Demons, which I thought was interesting. I remember James bringing up that Argento and Bava collabed a little bit. I don't know, did they collab a lot now that I'm thinking about that? Back and forth, yeah. Yeah, back and forth. And I've, I've also mentioned the Black Cat, a.k.a. Demons... I want to say six, which it doesn't actually have anything really to do with demons, (laughs) is technically more of a third movie in the Mother's Trilogy by Argento. Right. And it literally features snippets of the score from Suspiria, and they make reference to one of the other mothers in that movie and everything else. Yeah, like, there's lots of weird cross-pollination. Michael Suave, who's the weird guy in The Mask and Demons, he directed The Church, which is aka Demons 3, but not really. Like, that whole franchise is kind of weird, but they're all fairly enjoyable in their own kind of batshit ways. Right. Do you think this is his best film score? I saw like other film scores pop up that he worked on, like Tenebrae, I heard was really a good one. That score is really fucking good. I mean, Claudio Simonetti has done a lot of shit. I mean, obviously, he's done all of Dario Argento's stuff. So, I mean, that's fucking Deep Red, Suspiria, Tenebrae, Phenomena. I mean, he's one of the dudes from Goblin specifically. So, oh shit, I didn't realize he was part of Goblin. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, 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 totally. He's the keyboard player for Goblin. Okay. He's done yeah. a lot of big shit. I like the score to Demons, but that is definitely not what I would say is his best score. You know, like, if you want some, like, legit, oh, this is really fucking good, you know, the score to Deep Red is amazing, the score to Suspiria is amazing, like, there's a lot of good shit that he's done, aside from Demon, for sure. But Demons is good. Yeah, I just, I do wish there was more Drum Machine, like, that's my, like, final thesis <laughs> of, of that film score. 
I was expecting more with just how influential that whole bit of the score is to other things. Yeah. But yeah, it is what it is. Uh, moving on from music. Actually, we're going to revisit a old recommendation that you had, Aaron, a while back. And I finally got caught up on it. And I actually have read a few of the issues since then. I picked up the silver coin. After you recommended it, I picked up the first trade of it. Amazing. I really enjoy the anthology nature of the story with just this cursed ass coin. It feels like it's slowly, very slowly, methodically, like revealing just maybe a little bit more about the overall history of the coin in each little story. But there doesn't seem to be, at least not yet, an overarching plot beyond that. It just pops up in random places throughout different eras and fucks people's lives up. I did appreciate that there was some allusion to the coin among the stories. It's interesting, the origin of the coin. I wonder if there will be any stories that actually take place before like the witch hunt story because the witch hunt story kind of makes it seem like that's where it originally popped up but I'm wondering if there's going to be future stories where it takes place even before that like maybe this coin was still fucked up before them but to expand on your recommendation they took like a little bit of a I don't know if it was a brief break or not but after the first trade came out they finally put out issue six and seven and I think issue eight even I think I've only read six and seven six was really fun because it basically took place in the 80s or 90s and an arcade and yeah. an arcade and i thought it was interesting because that's where like a little bit of lore pops in because you overhear some kids in like the food court talking about hey did you hear what happened at the summer camp one of the earlier issues was a girl's summer camp turning into a slasher movie yeah there are little bits of the stories kind of starting to cross over and so it's definitely all in the same universe for sure yeah but i i really liked the arcade story and you could kind of see where it was going but it was still a lot of fun and i like there's almost like a little bit of a so what I'm looking for maybe like you know how Quentin Tarantino has that fictional cigarette company that always pops up in his movies yeah like red apple cigarettes yeah like there's even elements of that in the silver coin there's this slasher franchise that always pops up in these because like the girl has a like is watching one of those movies and then like the kid is playing a horror fighting video game and one of the like characters you can select is that same slasher so it's fun to see like a little bit of the world building there the writer for issue six was a Joshua Williamson, um, who's a damn good comic writer. I love that they're doing like this whole kind of writer creative team up for the anthology with different people coming on board for each issue. The first issue, I think, was Chip Zdarsky. So I think it's kind of maybe his baby. I actually want to say it's Williamson's. Oh, it is Williamson's. Okay. I like that they're constantly doing different creative teams. The writer for issue seven was... I think it's Ram 5 or Ram V. That one was also a fun issue that all took place in a uh, casino and it evolved Aztec lore and everything and ritualistic sacrifice and we'll just leave it there. But have you gotten caught up on the silver coin? Yeah, definitely. It's been really great so far. Yeah, I've been picking them up at uh, my local shop since I got the trade since you recommended it. By the time this recording comes out, issue eight will have come out and then issue nine is literally like two days after Valentine's Day. So, yeah, there you go. Hell yeah. So, yes, check out the silver coin from Image Comics. Top notch horror anthology. The next comic I have is also an Image comic. And this one kind of, I don't know if it's flown under the radar until like issue two or three. And now it's kind of getting, I'm making some waves. But I don't know. I randomly decided to grab this issue because it was the first issue. It's an Image comic. It looked interesting. 
interesting. It's a creative team I enjoy. I liked just the cover, but I had no idea what the comic was about. And I just picked it up off the rack, read the first issue, and now I'm following it. And uh, as of this recording, I think there are four issues out. Um, it's called What's the Furthest Place from Here? Creative team okay. is Tyler Boss, Matthew Rosenberg, and Hassan Atzmain Al-Hau. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Give that another stab. Hassan Atzmain Al-Hau. Okay. <laughs> What's, all right, I'll spell it out. O-T-S-M-A-N-E dash E-L-H-A-O-U. I am fucking terrible at pronunciation, so I apologize. Let's say I, I need you to spell that because I'm Googling it right now. Yeah, but yeah, okay. what's the furthest place from here? I wouldn't say it's capital H horror, but I think there is a lot of horror in this story so far that I would say it definitely fits the bill for like our show. It's this weird post-apocalyptic world where all that remains are these gangs of children that are like living in the ruins of the world. It's kind of like this weird, I don't know, like a little bit Mad Max mixed with Lord of the Flies mixed with punk rock. And the basic story is the gang that we're following, they take shelter in a record store. And this is just in like the first issue. Each of these gangs has a gimmick that they follow. And their gimmick is that they each go through the records, not really knowing what they are. When one of them, quote unquote, speaks to them, that's their personal God. That's their personal like relic. And like, it's awesome because like these kids are grabbing records like the dead kennedys you know like shit like that yeah and it's a lot of music you can recognize because uh, matthew rosenberg makes it a point to include a ton of allusions to certain bands and albums and and stuff like that but kind of what makes it more horrifying is that some of the gimmicks that these kids adopt are like pretty psychotic the gang that lives out in the bank they all wear like basically bank robber clothes but like you know bank robber from like the movies they're all in suits but then they're all wearing this weird porky pig like mask that kind of makes okay. them look menacing as fuck and then like you have another group of kids that are living in an abandoned um, old folks home and they all act like old folks they all shave their heads and wear wigs and literally pull their own teeth out so they have to have dentures and they pretend like they're old people Sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> fucking wild. And then they still haven't completely revealed what the nature of the strangers are, but there's these figures called the strangers. They're all like dressed in total black. They look like shadow people. They look honestly like kind of like Slenderman-esque. It's alluded to that they're the ones that assign these children into different gangs and called them quote unquote families the way like new children are brought in is that they just show up with a baby or a young child and like give them to the family. It's also kind of alluded to like once you reach an old enough age, you're not allowed to live in the family anymore. Like once you basically become an adult, there's a lot of interesting world building in the first few issues. The basic premise is that one of the children living in the gang that's in the record store leaves just like leaves in the middle of the night because they believe that there is more out there. When she leaves, the gang basically reluctantly is trying to figure out what happened to her they think some of the local games abducted her or killed her and so they cause some shit with the local gangs they come back to their record store and it's burned down one of the gangs in retaliation just burns it to the ground so they have to wander the wasteland and they decide they're going to try and find her and bring her home while also trying to survive and no longer having a home of their own i think the horror elements really come out whenever they interact or 
bring up the strangers whenever they interact with some of these other gangs. There's like this place called the market that they go to, which is apparently like a gang that lives in a, a supermarket, like a, a grocery store or like a maybe even like a Walmart, okay. a super Walmart. And they basically like are the barter family. But if you try and fuck them over, like they all say the same things like check out our deals. They're all like chanting the same like save 20% when you shop now. <laughs> and they're all like holding knives and like grinning like fucking psychos. And they're like, if you fuck us over, like we'll slaughter you and your family here because we don't hesitate. This is neutral ground. But if you break the rules, we're going to kill you all. So, yeah. yeah, it's really fucking fascinating. Aaron, I think you would really dig this comic. His musical taste is kind of like ours, Aaron, where it's like just all over the place. 80s punk rock to like okay. fucking Led Zeppelin to Queens of the Stone Age to modern hip hop, rock, all kinds of shit. And it's a lot of stuff I actually haven't checked out. So I, I made a list of some of the stuff he's been listening to so I can check it out too. I swear to God, like just in the first couple of shoots, he's listened to the entire discography of the band Can. Okay. Rock, rock band yeah. Can. Yeah. So it's really enjoyable. Other than that, it kind of inspired me to listen to uh, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables by the Dead Kennedys again, which is one of my... No, I will say it's probably my favorite favorite punk album of all time fresh fruit for rotting vegetables and i'm not going to bring it up as a recommendation but listeners if you want some like hardcore punk rock from the early 80s this is probably the best album i can think of and there are a lot of horror themes to it because it's very tongue-in-cheek but it's also extremely visceral and it's a giant takedown of 80s america kind of gearing up for reaganism and it's a critique on like how we worship violence, even violence that happens to children. So there's a lot of fucked up shit that album addresses. And unfortunately, a lot of it is still extremely relevant today. Check out that album too. But yes, what's the furthest place from here, from Image Comics? Check that out. And that's all I got this week. Cool. So I've actually got a couple of movies to discuss. My Vinegar Syndrome Black Friday order finally came in, and so I've been digging into the handful of titles that I got during that sale. I picked up Ticks in 4K. from 1993 so listeners he texted me about this movie and i had no idea this movie existed just go ahead and talk about it it's fucking nuts uh so this is from 1993 like i mentioned it's exactly what you think it is it's a movie about giant mutant ticks attacking people in the woods uh it's directed by tony randall who did most notably hellbound hellraiser 2 but he also did defcon 4 and amityville 1992 it's about time, and because that's the one with the clock. To get it, it's about time. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, this movie stars Seth Green, grown-ass man trying to, like, look like a child with wearing oversized clothes and, like, trying to hide his stubble, Seth Green. How old is Seth Green at the time of 1993? Like, I swear he's been perpetually, like, older than I thought he is, if that makes sense. He's been, like, 23 for his entire career. Yeah. yeah. Also, you have Alfonso Ribeiro from Fresh Prince, fucking Carlton, yep. trying his best to look just street tough and hard as fuck with his sunglasses and his Zubaz pants and his, like, ratty dog, and his name is Panic, and he's got a little switchblade and everything, right? right? So it's like this retreat <laughs> into the wilderness discovery exploration for troubled inner city youths kind of thing that this, you know, altruistic couple hosts. So it's just 
just the two of them and this handful of other kids, which, you know, none of them are like bad kids, I will say. Pretty solid kid acting. I mean, as solid as you would expect from a movie called Ticks. But the whole thing is there are marijuana growers out in the woods, kind of like, I guess, around these parts, you've got moonshiners up in the hills, right? Clint Howard plays one of these marijuana growers. He has some kind of crazy steroid chemical thing that he's using to pump up his weed. And of course, it's seeping into the ground and getting on the ticks and making the ticks into giant mutant ticks. Maybe the Bay was influenced by this movie. (laughs) Yeah, right. But uh, Rance Howard, who is the dad of the Howard clan, he is also in this as the sheriff. And yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's just stupid, ridiculous rubber ticks skittering across the ground, people hallucinating from the neurotoxin, getting ripped apart, and just insanity. So it's fun if you want a good, ridiculous creature feature with some good effects and lots of gore. So yeah, that's Ticks from 1993. It is available in 4 fucking K from Vinegar Syndrome, but I'm sure like we'll probably see it pop up on some kind of streaming relatively soon. So here's a question for you then. Was it just locked away and they found it and restored it in 4K? Because like you mentioned, right, that it's direct to video from 1993. Yeah, definitely had a VHS release. I think it had a DVD release maybe, but I want to say it's jumped Blu-ray entirely. Like it's either literally gone from VHS straight to 4K or it's gone from DVD to 4K. But either way, like that's kind of wild that we live in a time where we have fucking ticks in 4K. You'd brought it up on a previous episode. These boutique video shops are like pulling out all the stops to find like the most obscure shit that you would uh-huh. have never and think. Give them the royal treatment. and get it's the amazing. rights and like clean them the fuck up and release them. It, it is. It's insane to me. Like I feel like, especially for you, Aaron, but like people like you who collect these rare released movies. This must be the golden age of cinema restoration, at least for obscure horror. Yeah, especially for obscure horror and genre stuff. Because I mean, that's what collectors want. That's where the boutiques are making their bread and butter pretty much all the boutiques are specialized to something or another so criterion arrow eureka vinegar syndrome severin like they all know what's up and they're doing what they can to like make the best they can with the product that they have i mean should don't we owe it to was an arrow for blood rage and it being (laughs) so readily available and now a deep-seated part of our podcast lore (laughs) yeah absolutely so that brings me to the next title for my vinegar syndrome dump which was the laughing dead from 1990 this is one that i remember seeing the box art for at our local video store growing up because the box art is just this goofball's fucking monster face maniacally like grinning and cheesing dude full frame on the box i remember this fucking vhs cover from our blockbuster holy shit this is bringing me back this was directed by samtal sucharakul this is my turn to fuck up somebody's name <laughs> welcome to the club samtal sucharakul uh we share the same birthday by the way look at that hey happy birthday <laughs> stars tim sullivan this is about a cult in Mexico that is reviving some kind of Mayan dark magic through murdering tourists 
It's this rich archaeologist, doctor, researcher guy who's kind of the main guy behind it, also played by the director. There's a priest who got into some trouble, dot, dot, dot. He had an affair with a nun at their convent. She left. She shows back up all these years later with a kid who is definitely his, dot, dot, dot. Okay. And it's basically this priest taking this whole group of tourists on this, oh, we're going to go explore these ruins and see all this cool stuff blah 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 and you know little by little they just all get evil dead style kind of taken out but it is insanely gory very much again one of those amateur ability but like titan passion where everybody is clearly doing their best and the effects in this movie are really fucking impressive for the kind of movie that this is that's the reason to check this out is the special effects in it are kind of fucking bonkers for like where the rest of this movie is playing at any problematic elements because there feels like there could oh, be sure yeah sure <laughs> yeah this is a 1990 movie that is about a group of american white tourists all getting brought to mexico and being murdered by <laughs> a like mayan aztec priest guy dot 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 yeah none of it's kosher the part of me that loves schlock is so into this premise and watching this movie but then like the part of me is like oh man this this seems really mean-spirited to like groups of people yeah, i mean yeah it's definitely like early 90s horror in that sense where it's this director from southeast asia making this movie about mexico so it's kind of weird in that sense we're like i don't think any of this is correct culturally right no but yeah like definitely an insane special effects movie worth checking out once again that's the laughing dead from 1990 vinegar syndrome has it out on blu-ray i'm not sure where it is streaming Streaming is also weird with all these boutiques to circle back around to that. Severin seems to like immediately dump pretty much all of their stuff straight to Shutter, But then Vinegar Syndrome doesn't really seem to do a whole lot of streaming at all. So it's weird and the rights, I'm sure, like a problem. But yeah, sometimes with some of these movies, you just got to end up forking over that money, which is what I did for The Laughing Dead. Because I was like, oh shit, I know this VHS cover. I've seen this. The guy from the label and some recent interview I was listening to was like if there's one thing you're gonna fucking check out trust me check this one out it's a blast so I bought that hook line and sinker and don't regret it it was a fun movie so that gets me to my last two recommendations which are both from the same thing so we're gonna hop over to Severin films I pre-ordered months ago and it finally came in all the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror, which is their giant box set with 20 feature films from all around Jeez. the world. All kinds of short films, all kinds of other bits and pieces. I'm looking at it right now because, I mean, it's sold out, but like, I'm looking at like the packaging and everything of this. This looks Oh, it's nice. Awesome. It's very nice. It also includes a three hour and 15 minute long, massively comprehensive documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror directed by Kirla Janice. Kirla Janice? Kirla Janice. I'm sorry. Uh, once again, we are messing up names. It's just who we are. Yeah, that is kind of the like start here of the entire box set. 
pause here for a sec. Again, I'm just checking out this box set displayed out with all the discs and everything. I'm just picturing my head. It opens up and you just becoming the Andy Samberg gif from Jizz in My Pants. Oh, basically, I'm just yeah. being like, as you're hitting by now. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's immediately so. that face, that like <laughs> face. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the documentary is kind of start here of the entire thing. Right. It's a very good primer for the entire thing i think it's laid out great it kind of starts in england specifically talking about english folk horror and just kind of the start of that in film specifically and it kind of talks about that terrible trio of witchfinder general wicker man and blood on satan's claw and it kind of talks about the overall themes of British folk horror. And then it kind of morphs and moves into American folk horror. And talking about how that's kind of a direct grew out of the British side of it. And then it kind of spreads to like talking about worldwide stuff from all different countries and cultures. And then it kind of catches up specifically talking about like modern like last couple of years and the revival of folk horror. So it's a very, very good documentary. And as many movies that are in this box, this fucking documentary probably gives you like an entire year's worth of movies to check out if you just stuck with everything that's on the list. And there's several things that we've covered on the show. I was about to ask you that. There's tons of movies that we have mentioned on the show. They even got as specific as talking about stuff like The Stone Tape, which was one of the like made-for-TV British things that I brought up on our episode uh, for Prince of Darkness with Cullen Bunn. It's a great, great documentary. And then I watched the first movie in the set, which is one of the movies that I was very much looking forward to that I had never seen. I had heard a lot about it. I remember also seeing this box art at our local video place and never checking it out. It is a movie called Eyes of Fire from 1983, directed by Avery Krause. It is very similar to The Witch, which is a movie we have covered on this show, where a group of pioneer settler Puritans dot 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 basically all get kicked out of their settlement and decide, okay, fuck y'all, we don't need you anyway. We're going to go out into the completely unexplored wilderness of America and try to, like, forge our own path. And, of course, as soon as they get out there, they realize, you know, nature is the devil's church. Satan, Satan, Satan. Everything just bites them in the ass, and there's a fucking mud witch, and there's all these naked mud familiar people running around and trying to, like, snatch children, people having, like, crazy bouts of madness. It's wild. It's pretty psychotronic, and there's weird video effects in it, and just really insane imagery i'm looking at some of the imagery from the film and it reminds me of you know how in the music video for check check it out by the bc boys does that reverse kind of like video style i think that wolfen does when it shows you like what the yeah. werewolf is looking like yeah it's just like that color invert kind of thing yeah yeah and i'm digging this but yeah this movie was pretty fucking interesting is like my first dip into this box set i watched the other three little short films that were on here as well too which were kind of disparate and interesting. I didn't necessarily like look at the rest of the booklet and stuff like that to kind of see like is there a through line with everything else that's on that disc. 
except that it's like obviously American folklore. Like there's a little animated Legend of Sleepy Hollow short. There was a short about like an H.P. Lovecraft stand-in person kind of going into this abandoned house and finding weird shit. So far, so good. The box set seems pretty dope. I'm going to continue making my way through it. And guess what? Guess what? As of right now, while we're recording this episode, so it should all still fucking be there in a couple weeks, hopefully. Literally, it looks like fucking all the features and the documentary are all on Shutter, So you Shit, can okay. watch all them real easily. So for anybody that wants to check this stuff out, guess what? You don't have to drop fucking $170 on this box set. It's all on Shutter. Definitely check out the documentary. Again, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. It's pretty great. That alone will give you a lot to chew on and a lot to view. So definitely, definitely check all that stuff out. Last detail I will throw out about Ice of Fire specifically is one of the characters early on in the movie is actor Will Hare, aka Grandpa from Silent Night, Deadly Night. Thanks, Grandpa. Yeah, so it was fucking <laughs> yeah. weird to like see him again after we had just recently covered that movie, and I was like, wait, that's fucking Grandpa. <laughs> was he just yelling about Santa and Santa's actually Krampus in the wilderness or something? I mean, shit? no, but he's basically yelling about like the woods are evil. Well, there's devils in them woods. <laughs> Same thing. Don't want to go down that road. That road is yeah. cursed. Yeah. So, yeah, that is all I've got for this episode. But I've got a couple other things already in the hopper for our next episode that I'll discuss. I just want to get a little bit deeper into them before I talk about them. So, that said, let's go ahead and get started talking about this movie. Because, like you and I discussed, realistically, there's only like one slot a year where we can really like do this movie right so frankly we should have done it last year since last year was technically the 40th anniversary of this movie but whatever i didn't pay attention to the dates but uh you know yeah so we're doing my bloody valentine from 1981 canadian slasher directed by george mahalka for our valentine's day this year it's a bad time this time of year how many times is he gonna tell this story I love fairy tales. This ain't no fairy tale, little girl. If you don't take it seriously, you're a fool! <laughs> the first Valentine's dance in 20 years has to be something special. Look, Landers, you gotta get a lot of exercise if you're gonna grapple with Gretchen. Oh, yeah? Well, I got a Valentine for her that she's never gonna forget. <laughs> right to the heart, huh? In this town on Valentine's Day, everybody loses their heart. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you. It can't be happening again. It can't be happening again. What's going on over in Valentine Bluffs? It looks like Harry Warden's back in town. It happened once. It happened twice. Cancel the dancer, it'll happen twice. In the town of Valentine Bluffs, there are many ways to die. Take your pick. My bloody Valentine. 
cool. These uh, holiday slashers, they kind of follow a, a similar formula in some ways, I feel like, because as I was watching this, and I enjoyed this movie, I did, but I enjoyed it in the same way I enjoyed Silent Night, Deadly Night. It just felt like both of them were like really cashing in on Halloween success. I was being like, all right, oh, what yeah. holiday yeah. hasn't been covered? Oh, shit. We got Christmas covered with Black Christmas and, and uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, shit. What's left? We Halloween's already taken. I don't know. Let's do Valentine's Day because that's what it really felt like. Now, granted, this movie is kind of the prototypical like 80s slasher. Like if someone were to ask for just something that leans on all the tropes, right? Not necessarily the best of the bunch. Like if an alien Landon's like, I want to see something that follows all the tropes. Really the only trope that's kind of missing from this movie. I don't think there's any nudity ever. There are moments of it leading up to that, leading up to sex, but like no outright nudity. The closest we actually get is like when all the guys are showering after like a shift in the mine shaft. That's it. I don't think anyone ever goes topless in this movie, do they? Well, I don't remember. No. And on that note, I'm going to talk briefly about the 2009 remake toward the end of this episode. But bully, bully, there is literally an entire 10 minute long scene where this one actress is just full butt ass bush out naked running through a parking lot in fucking like heels with a gun. And it's very excessive. Heather was in the room while I was watching it and she was like, this girl is whole ass naked <laughs> and it's been a long time that she's been on screen whole ass naked and i was like yeah <laughs> did the, yeah did the 09 remake right the wrong of the missed opportunity from 1981 version did anyone hang dong uh no nobody hung dong no one hung dong what come In on the remake yeah you I, had that whole shower scene like, trust me the remake was bro. definitely a little too broy for that so yeah. unfortunately no no hanging dong in the remake but i mean to your point yeah holiday horror has been a thing for like fucking ever well and, and to finish my point though like this is a very generic version of holiday horror even more so than silent night deadly night i felt like but it still did everything like fun 80s schlocky competent enough that i was having a great time watching it yeah i dug the design of the slasher this is bringing up a phobia and horror like what type of horror this movie addresses bring up one early and this was something i want to pick your brain on Aaron because I know this is a phobia of yours I felt like the claustrophobia in this movie was on point oh yeah totally I can't fucking dude like I, I can't do it yeah I, I don't know what it is but a mine shaft is just naturally like such a good not just for any horror movies but specifically slasher movie like what's so memorable to me about this movie isn't that it is a Valentine's Day slasher that's not the memorable part the memorable part is you have a guy running around and mining equipment like a slasher in a mine shaft these young adults are like trapped in this maze-like mine down there with him and even a bit of a mystery of is this the same killer from you know 25 yeah. years ago or is this just someone completely new almost like scream i thought the setting of the mine shaft and being stalked down by a slasher was so good and i thought this movie handled that really well i watched the uncut version you had sent me the uncut which is hard to fucking come by by the way because most streaming and renting has the uncut version it's hard to come by on streaming for free yeah you can still rent it
it around. And Scream Factory put out an amazing fucking Blu-ray two years ago that's readily available. They even did a second dip with a steel book of it. So you can buy this movie cheaply and get both versions of the movie with lots of extras. I I guess this is the uncut version in general, but it does the same thing that Silent Night, Deadly Night did where like you can tell when scenes change quality immediately because you can tell exactly what stuff was actually cut out. And it's kind of shocking the stuff they cut out of this because there were movies way before this movie that did way more questionable, at least in my mind, way more questionable violent shit than the kills that happened in this movie. But that's just me, I guess. So this movie is definitely violent and it's definitely like explicit in that violence and graphic in the violence, but I don't think that this movie is as mean-spirited. I, I know that's like a weird distinction to draw. No, I get what you're saying. When we talked about what you're Silent saying. Night, Deadly Night. That's a fucking cruel, mean, mean like, yeah. nasty movie, yeah. right? And the kills in it feel that way. Like, there, there's, like, an evil to how that movie feels, right? Even the most ridiculous kill in that movie just feels mean-spirited. Yeah, totally, Which right? is when she gets impaled on the uh, the deer head. Yeah, which is why that movie has, like, so much edge to it. This doesn't quite have that, even though, like, oh, shit. The guy got the pickaxe through the bottom of his jaw, and it pops his fucking eyeball out. So that kill was fucking awesome, my God. I loved that. The old lady getting thrown in the fucking dryer until she turns into like a microwave hot dog. Like, that's rough, right? It doesn't feel as mean as Silent Night, Deadly Night does. So, like, it it seems like it got cut more for, like, the graphic quality of the gore, but not necessarily, like, the meanness of the kills. Yeah. Which, to your point, that's why it does seem kind of weird, because there are other movies that seem just meaner. Way more intense and like way even gorier, but maybe it yeah, is. And they get away with yeah, it. Yeah, maybe it is a, the nature of, behind those kills. But I will yeah. say the closest the movie comes to becoming mean spirited is what happens to the laundromat woman. That's a rough one because like she seems like she's <laughs> a good person and she just likes Valentine's yeah. Day and she's excited for it to return finally. You can tell she kind of has a thing for maybe the sheriff. It's all cutesy. And then she, uh, yeah, she like when her body pops out of the dryer, it's uh, it's rough. Um, yeah totally she definitely gets the worst of it but uh <laughs> the thing i did like too about this movie which i wasn't expecting was the town because the town treats valentine's day the return of valentine's day at least like haddonfield treats halloween like just decorations everywhere and like i don't think any other town in the world celebrates valentine's day to this extreme like where the whole downtown is just covered in hearts and shit well so the town is literally named Valentine valentine's bluff, bluff yeah right and I, I wrote that down that it's it's kind of one of those things like imagine Salem, Massachusetts, and you fucking know Salem, Massachusetts. That entire town revolves around Halloween. Yeah. That is the fucking day of the year that that entire town goes buck wild and they make a gajillion tourist dollars for Halloween, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of the same thing I would bet for Valentine's Bluff. The difference is Valentine's Bluff seems to be populated by like 60 people total. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Yeah, and like, so the thing that like I wasn't expecting to be in this movie was dark history of the small town. But I was thinking about it. I was just like, it's not really a hidden history. It's more just like the young people. Are, oh, that was 25 years ago. The dude is locked up or dead. You know, who gives a shit? Yeah, I still would contend that if something like that actually happened, where a guy dressed up as a fucking miner and went on a killing spree and like wiped out these mining managers and executives for this company like that shit would be still talked about people would still remember that shit yeah all day every day 25 years and yeah like the older people in town remember it and like the mayor's kind of paranoid about like valentine's day returning after 25 years but like even then i I still think the kids that were raised in this town would be like valentine's day is an evil fucking day like (laughs) it's outlawed here in the same way footloose outlaws dancing we're outlawing valentine's day and valentine's bluff but yeah i uh i think more than valentine's day though again going back to it i think the mine itself and the idea of being trapped in a mine is terrifying yeah i hate it i think this movie actually does a great job of really capturing that and i love that the movie starts off in the rec room above ground of the mine and it winds up going down into the mine and there's a good reason for that i thought that like the the story progression made sense to me as to like why i did granted these young adults are acting like fucking teenagers in a slasher movie but you kind of need that yeah you need some kills and you need people like doing that well look i we've said it everybody has said it you can't fucking look at a horror movie anymore and say like oh these characters are so dumb nobody would ever do this in real life nobody would ever go out and have a party knowing that bad shit is going on let me welcome you to the last two years (laughs) so i don't buy that fucking excuse anymore yeah so the fact that like yeah all these horny ass young adults who just want to party and fuck on valentine's day yeah they're gonna like go out and fucking party despite there being a killer on the loose again dot 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 and a town where there was a tragedy 20 years ago right yeah it doesn't seem out of the ordinary at all that they would just be like yeah fuck it let's go party at the work break room and oh by the way yeah let's go down into the mine for fuck shit yeah i another thing too i love how much this movie kind of telegraphs throughout the beginning and the setup and i think i texted you this i I remember like one of the girls she says something like this party's gonna be the death of me and then like she gets fucking gutted (laughs) later on so that goes back to like what I mentioned earlier about it follows all these tropes but it does it in an endearing enough way that like while it is kind of a generic movie in some regard, I think it sets itself apart in enough ways that, you know, I can see why this is a slasher classic. And again, I think the, yeah. the mine scenes really make up for that. And I wouldn't even say that the movie is generic as much as I would just say the movie is template. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Granted, Halloween came before this, Black Christmas came before this, and this movie is definitely capitalizing off the like immediate oh my god friday the 13th was like a mega hit that nobody was really expecting the year before oh shit i didn't even think about that yeah but this movie does a lot of template setting you know it's it's playing off the formula and it's kind of creating this imprint that lots and lots and lots of movies would kind of do from there right 
but yeah, like I just said, this this movie definitely was developed specifically in 1980 as a like, oh shit, Friday the 13th came out in May, massive huge hit, oh god, we gotta capitalize on this, right? And they literally like developed, wrote, shot, edited, and released this movie within like nine months. Less than nine months, really, because it came out in, uh, it was February 11th in the US and February 13th in Canada of 81, and they like literally started on it summer of 80. So let me ask you this. Watching this, this felt like a movie that was really trying to start its own franchise. Like it was really trying to capitalize on Halloween, Friday the 13th. Yes. And it's wild that there is no franchise. Like it made yes. money. Now it was not the runaway success that Friday the 13th was, right? Friday yeah. the 13th made five times its budget, which it was not hundreds of millions of dollars, but it made five times its budget and nobody was expecting that and they were expecting similar with this one and it just made twice its budget yeah so the studio heads were like oh well it was a flop and they just kind of didn't run with it but yeah. you would still think that this movie would have spawned some kind of franchise yeah. especially the way that the whole thing ends and the entire lore around the character and they clearly created this iconic killer yeah harry warden the miner itself yeah it feels like a franchise character like this this character totally, was totally, totally. written f- to carry a slasher franchise and what this does in the same vein as again silent night deadly night because I, I think there are a lot of comparisons between this and that movie is it takes an everyday thing and makes it terrifying and silent night deadly night him wearing the santa costume while going around killing like it takes that everyday like thing we take for granted at least during the holiday season turns it terrifying yeah and harry warden's essentially just wearing their work clothes yeah he basically turns into like steampunk darth vader just just by wearing the mine outfit. Yeah. But it's iconic, at least in this movie. It, it seems kind of iconic with the heavy breathing, kind of like Darth Vader. But, yeah. you know, when he's in full getup, it's just this unknowable person in this minor outfit. There's something visceral about using a pickaxe specifically to, like, kill people with. Like, yeah. again, going back to that kill of the barkeep guy who, like, was like, you damn kids, you'll pay for this. <laughs> Him getting pickaxed through the chin and the tip of it coming out of his eye. That's way worse than, like, getting impaled with a kitchen knife by Michael Myers in my opinion. That was a fucking brutal kill. Not just that, but I mean there were a bunch of pretty wild ones. The nail gun kill was pretty rough too, yeah. So so what's Mabel's favorite dead or alive song? What is it? You were waiting all goddamn day to say that, weren't you? Her death is pretty fucking rough. Again, she looks like a microwaved hot dog. What's Happy's favorite fast food chain? What is it? Popeyes. Damn. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, yep. like that's kind of the great thing is literally every death in this movie is pretty unique and interesting. Actually, the one that really made me cringe was the guy who got his face thrown into the pot of boiling hot dogs and just held in place. Well, that would be the worst way to die in this movie, I feel like. I, mean, I know this is an audio medium, but uh, audience, I am mugging in the fucking camera yeah, so are. hard right now. What's Dave's favorite Limp Bizkit album? Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavor. 
That's a good one. Tell you what, though. I like that one. Sylvia gives new meaning to the word shower head. If we want to talk about, like, the the surface level of, like, what is attractive about slasher films, the creativity of kills is one of those things. And this movie, like, capitalizes on creativity in spades. And that's part of the criticism is just think about every review you've ever read from fucking anybody of these kinds of movies. And it's always just, it's really just a showcase for, like, kills that are viciously and, like, disturbingly creative and for makeup effects people to, like, show what they can do. Well, yeah, no shit. That's why it's awesome, that's too. That's <laughs> kind of what's disturbing about the movie, and that's why we go see it, and it's kind of this weird, yes, this movie is exploring random acts of violence, and the movie is exploring weird local legend, generational violence, certainly, like, this is very much a sins of the father you know, expressed onto the children kind of movie. Like, once again, child trauma. Yeah, I mean, the movie (laughs) is exploring all these kinds of things in ways that, you know, it's safe for you, the audience, to kind of let that steam out a little bit and kind of decompress from a lot of your real-life anxieties and fears. Imagine living in fucking New York in the 70s and 80s when it was like a nightmare shit show and you're, like, dealing with real-life insanity quite often and that's constantly something that's in the back of your head is that threat of violence and being able to go see something like this and at least let off some of your steam you know yeah i mean i think there is a purpose to it beyond just we said masochism of like oh yeah let's just kill people in like weird ways but then again too like even that though i think lends merit and we're, we're finding that now in modern day as we revisit a lot of these movies and a lot of these movies gain cold status and, and this kind of is just because my brain is still pretty fresh from heather wixon's book just the kills that happen in this movie themselves, I am now just fascinated. What did the makeup team and effects teams have to go through to create these? Yeah, I'm so happy, too, that that book has kind of got your brain like, yeah. running now. How did they do that? The two that actually intrigued me are Mabel's <laughs> cooked like a hot dog in the in the dryer, and then uh, the barkeep's, like, you know, the thing going through his eye, like the pickaxe going through his eye. Like, that's interesting to me now, like, from an effects standpoint. Yeah. How much time did it take to get those models down and like i'm sure at least with the pickaxe kill like you have to get it right when you shoot it otherwise it's going to cost more budget to like constantly trying to remake that and reset it that kill is totally editing that kill is we're going to show you motion yeah we're going to show you a weird angle and then we're going to cut to like in place makeup already and just kind of cut it together in a fast way that tricks your brain into thinking you're seeing something happening that you're not right but there's lots of good shit um Why does Hollis hate working in the mine? Why is that? Because it gives him a splitting headache. (laughs) Why does Howard go down into the mine with all these other couples by himself? I guess he just likes to hang out. 
so Howard, out of all of them, was the one I was begging to be killed. Oh, well, of course. I'm a little disappointed it happens off screen. I wanted to watch him get murdered because he was the douchiest of douchebags. It's still a great surprise that his body falls down. Oh, he got hunged and then just... Just body snaps off like a fucking cherry tomato (laughs) and just splats like that is kind of that extra. Oh, 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 shit kind of thing. And I feel like that's what this movie's good about is the kills that you do see. They're all pretty like, oh, hey, oh. Oh, hey, oh, they have like that extra little bit to them, right? <laughs> yeah, I like when they climb down from the ladder, like, just don't look at his body. There's yeah. no head there. <laughs> and this is definitely not my own idea. It's a thought I had while watching the movie and reading up on it afterwards. Like, there is some retrospective assessment that says basically the same thing. But besides, like, the mine itself being like an awesome original setting for a slasher movie, another thing, and we, we've alluded to this earlier with the age of the characters in this movie, it is interesting that like despite it sounds like the studio wanted this pumped out to like cash in on Friday the 13th and Halloween as like this holiday slasher they didn't go with teens they actually went with working class young adults yes I appreciate this as well I think that's really interesting because even though these are adults this movie felt more realistic honestly from like how young adults act even like when we were younger in our 20s think of our friend group we all worked in a mine and we went to the same bar like after a hard day's uh, shift. I don't, I'd hope we wouldn't be as fucking chauvinistic as they are, but like we would kind of act that way. Like we would get drunk, have a great time, and even though we've done it twenty thousand times after every shift, it'd be a great time every time. We'd put on music and like sing loudly and drunkenly. Like a young adult doesn't mean that you're no longer a teenager. Act similar to a teenager. Like you can yeah. still have that immaturity that some of these characters have in slasher movies, but it makes so much more sense for these adults. This movie would be less of a movie to me if it was just oh we're the teenagers we're tired of our parents canceling valentine day on us let's go to the abandoned mine shaft and go down the mine shaft because we know how to work the equipment somehow and like that's how we wind up there so surprise surprise in the remake that's exactly how it starts fuck (laughs) is it starts you know years ago and it is just the group of fucking high school teenage kids all being like oh we're gonna go fucking party in the mine and then like the initial massacre happens happens and then it cuts forward 10 years later and catches up with the handful of kids that survived to see like where they're at now but that's exactly where it starts there and it makes you're right it makes no sense yeah. like why are all these high schoolers going to this fucking like dangerous ass mine but then it takes away that one of the most interesting aspects of this movie how the first killing spree that harry warden does 25 years prior is basically just getting revenge on his bosses for like yes. their incompetence and like them wanting to leave work early before like ensuring the safety of you know the people that are actually still down in the mine that's so much more fascinating to me because like what he does also like yes maybe these people in some way deserve death for like what happened to him and his co-workers but then like through his killing spree and his sin it's then like imprinted on one of the sons of you know one of these douchebag executives or douchebag managers yeah. so I think that's such an interesting thing of like violence beget violence um, which granted this movie doesn't explore as much as it maybe should have but like it's there and that's interesting yeah on the note too about we both appreciate the fact that these are adults i also appreciate the fact that these are legitimately like these are all unknown people 
right? Yeah. This movie was kind of the first movie in most of these people's career, and most of these people didn't go on to do a whole lot of anything. So it does lend a lot of authenticity to the feeling of the movie that you are watching this movie about normal people. You know, you're not watching a movie with a young Kevin Bacon, for instance, like Friday the 13th, right? You're not watching a movie with Margot Kidder and Olivia Hussey. You're not watching Jamie Lee Curtis. There's no stars in this movie. I was going to say that Paul Kelman to me, like uh, who plays TJ, the main character, he fucking reminds me of early 80s. Uh, who's the actor who played Ramsey Bolton in Game of Thrones? Sure. That guy. Like, I, <laughs> like yeah, Ewan Rion, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of that. I, what has, else has he been in? Because like I couldn't find much on him. Paul Kelman really has not been in anything else, Harley. So he was in that movie Black Roses that I brought up a couple of weeks back about the fucking metal band is bringing Satan to the small town and oh all the kids in the town are going crazy for this metal band right uh that's really the only other thing that he was in notably Lori Hallier who played Sarah basically just in Canadian TV uh Neil Affleck who plays Axel he was in a couple of horror movies so he's a background character in Scanners which we have discussed on the show he's in Visiting Hours he's in Murder by Phone which is a weird title and has a weird goofy looking poster and he's directed a lot of animated kids TV sure okay Keith Knight who plays Hollis which by the way Hollis is the closest to a fucking personal avatar that I've ever found in a horror movie. <laughs> Big guy, dumb mustache, yeah. and a cute lady. Well, and he also, like, out of all of them, he seems the least immature. Like, he seemed like he actually, like, cared for his friends and really cared for his girlfriend. And he kind of, to me, had one of the more tragic deaths in the movie. He seemed like he had his shit together, kind of, but he did like to party. Yeah, fucking nail gun to the head was pretty gnarly. Yeah, that's rough. He is in the Summer Camp Classic meatballs with Bill Murray. He's also in Class of 1984, which I have mentioned on the show before. He is in a movie called Siege, which... Fuck you, Memphis shipping distro, because I ordered the Severin Blu-ray of Siege weeks ago, and it has apparently just gotten lost in the mail, and uh, I'm trying to like get another copy of that so I can watch it, but apparently he's in that movie. Uh, he's in Of Unknown Origin, lots of other Canadian TV, and again, he did a lot of voice acting in like Canadian kids' cartoons. Yeah. Unfortunately, he passed back in 2007, though, brain cancer. Yeah. Uh. Cynthia Dale, who plays Patty, who is his girlfriend character. She was in Heavenly Bodies and Moonstruck. Again, lots of Canadian TV. Alf Humphreys, who plays Howard. He was also in a shit ton of Canadian TV. Virus, Funeral Home, First Blood, Rumble in the Bronx, Final Destination 2, X-Men 2, The Uninvited, the and fuck? he's been in like all the Diary of a Wimpy Kid franchise movies. Okay. Larry Reynolds plays Mayor Hanniger. Not much to say there. Patricia Hamilton plays Mabel. Not much to say there. Jack Van Evera plays Happy. Not much to say there. Peter Cowper plays The Minor. Harry Ward not much to say there. What I did notice is as I was going through, basically everybody in this fucking cast has been in this weird handful of Canadian TV shows and movies, right? So Gas, which is a Canadian movie with fucking Donald Sutherland and Sterling Hayden and Howie Mandel. Basically, this entire cast was in this fucking movie. 
And then these TV shows, Seeing Things, The Littlest Hobo, Robocop, Twilight Zone, Street Legal, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, War of the Worlds, and the Friday the 13th TV show. The amount of fucking cast people that all had those by their names was kind of wild. Yeah, I did see Patricia Hamilton, despite not doing much as Mabel. Uh, she was in the Friday the 13th TV show. Yeah. Did you mention the sheriff? No, I left him for last. Yeah, because if anyone was an anybody, it felt like him, but I don't know. Yes, he actually had a good bit of credits. He was in a lot of both U.S and Canadian TV. He was in Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He was in Heavy Metal, Johnny Mnemonic, Harriet the Spy. And these are my two favorite ones, okay? He has been the voice of fucking Sabretooth in the X-Men cartoons, the X-Men video games, and all the, like, Marvel vs. Capcom games. He has, like, been the voice of Sabretooth consistently through all that shit. He was also the voice of Boba Fett in the, like, goofy animated segment in the middle of the Star Wars holiday special. All this, the actual, like, isn't that canonically the first appearance of Boba Fett? Yes. And he was the voice of Boba Fett in the droids cartoon as well as the character Jantosh and Kaibo Ren. Wow. Sound familiar? <laughs> he was also the voice of the Duloc Shaman in Ewoks. So, kind of wild that I literally have action figures of three fucking characters that this guy voiced in two different Star Wars cartoons. What the fuck, yeah. right? That's some weird, weird shit that, yeah. I, like, reading that today, I was just like, wait, what is this? <laughs> I know he also had a stage name of Iron Buffalo, and he died, I think, back in 2016, also of cancer. Gotcha. That's fucking a, a wild career. Yeah, so, like, that entire cast did a shit ton of Canadian TV, but they did a lot of the same Canadian TV, and multiple people in this cast were directly involved with kids' animated shows yeah. in the later parts of their careers which is wild if i had to pick any of them at least out of the younger cast if i had to pick any of them to go on actually do shit i am surprised that uh neil affleck who plays axel axel didn't go on to do more but you know hey he has a pretty good legacy with this film alone and like his his character is by far he's way more interesting of a character to me than tj is which okay on that note too axel's an asshole and spoiler alert we're already spoiling this movie we've been talking about this movie Yes, Axel ends up being the villain. Once the Scooby-Doo mask is pulled off, it turns out, yeah. oops, it was Axel this whole time. He adopted the minor outfit. This is again going to the comparison with Silent Night, Deadly Night, because it's almost an opposite movie, where Silent Night, Deadly Night begins with him witnessing like his parents get murdered by the Santa Claus. This almost ends with the reveal of why Axel's doing this, with his memory of his dad getting murdered by the minor because his dad was one of the douchebag managers that left the people when the mind collapsed uh, that reveals kind of like ridiculous because it's sort of dreamlike and like the blood splashes on his face as a little boy for a split yeah. second the little boy's like <laughs> licking his dad's blood because he's in shock or something in both cases it's still a weird reverse batman kind of yeah. thing like imagine if batman became the joker <laughs> like, well no imagine if batman just became like gunman right like <laughs> It is kind of a weird thing. Killed everybody. You jaywalk, you get murdered. But anyway, yeah, like, so Axel's an asshole, right? That's kind of the whole thing in this movie is he is just an unapologetic asshole. There's all the, like, friction between him and TJ because TJ was dating Sarah. And TJ just 
fucking left without a word. And we never really find out why he ditched. And again, this is filmed in Nova Scotia, which is one of the maritime provinces way all the way east of Canada, right? And they say he went out west. Well, out west from fucking Nova Scotia could be Toronto for all we know, right? I thought one line implied that he went tried to go to Hollywood and he like fell flat on his face in Hollywood. I swear, I thought there was a throwaway line from his dad or something. I didn't get that impression that he went to go act. I've seen this movie multiple times. I have never gotten that impression. Thought there was a line that said he went to Hollywood and like fucking failed there. Okay, well, I, I have missed that line in the multiple times that I've watched this movie, but they say he went out west regardless right but he like left without a word he never fucking spoke to sarah he never called her he never wrote her and then he comes back and is like oh but but, 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 but i'm sorry i fucked (laughs) up real bad where i went i tried and but i'm back now like please just take me back no right do you blame sarah like axel's an asshole again he is an asshole he's clearly like weirdly possessive of her yeah, like overprotective possessive you know like she gets up to leave the table and he's like where are you going right uh, yeah, axel's an asshole but tj is also really fucking presupposing of sure but you're just gonna get right back with me again right you're totally just gonna do that because i deserve that what right like so no i don't blame sarah at all for like moving on right like clearly she made a mistake getting with axel because axel's an asshole but at the same time like nah i don't blame her at all for like ditching tj when he fucking left without a word and like never explained or called her right well and tj almost they don't really dig into this in the movie but he has that mentality of assuming this is the way things are gonna go now yeah that's what i'm saying he has that weird entitlement well the movie really only hints at it like what once or twice that he's the mayor's son so like i think there's a bit of that the thing that's so fascinating to me with axel is there's obviously two sides to axel there's the side that is just the alpha bro like possess a boyfriend but then when it's revealed that he's the minor murdering everyone he has that fucking fascination with valentine's day of like if the town didn't put on the dance and the like young adults that he worked with said they were not going to have a valentine's day party like would he have done all this shit like would would he have donned the minor costume and like gone crazy is that the thing that made him snap and go crazy after all these years question mark well remember at the very beginning of the movie like there's that woman also in the mining outfit i guess he's cheating on sarah like hooking up with her yeah but then like she has a heart tattoo on on her breast and that like causes the blood rage i guess and like he fucking <laughs> and, like kills her by impaling her with a pickaxe what's his end game here like is it the balance yeah day that's causing him to go crazy or is it just he's under so much stress with being caught in this love triangle and sarah may be about to leave him and he just decides to go buck wild and use valentine's day as like yeah and uh, that's what i wrote down too is like we never get a satisfying explanation of what his motives are other than like in air quotes harry killed his father on valentine's day and he saw it swish 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 right you'd think again the last thing he'd want to do is emulate the killer and then murder his friends question mark yeah because he seemed like he was pretty close to all the people he fucking murdered yeah so i I wonder if it's almost when he dons the minor outfit he just becomes like a different person he basically becomes michael myers going back to like this felt like a movie that was trying to kickstart a franchise i think part of the reason why we never got a satisfying answer is like what were his actual motivations is i think they were going to explore that in the sequel which is why he 
gets away in the end. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, cutting your own arm off to, like, get away is hard as fuck, by the way. Yeah, like, that's pretty... <laughs> that's some badass shit. Yeah, and I had to, like, rewatch these scenes a couple times, but the final fight scene where, like, he's going after TJ and Sarah and he starts trying to kill TJ, does he ever actually explicitly try and hurt Sarah? It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like it, right? Like, so I'm wondering if his idea randomly was that he was going to kill all their friends, kill TJ, but spare Sarah and then drag her off into the mine with him or something. And then dot, 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 everything will be okay. Yeah. yeah. But like, that's an interesting like slasher logic of just, yeah, no, I still love this person. So like, even all these friends I've worked with for years and years and we like, we blood, sweat and tears in the mines. Yeah, fuck them. They're dead. But you know, as soon as I kill this asshole who's stealing my girl, like everything's going to be okay. But it is an interesting dynamic that he never actually goes after Sarah. There's a part after he like kills her friend right in front of her. He probably could have killed her easily and he just kind of stares at her and then like lets her sure. you know run away and so yeah I just thought that was an interesting thing but since we're still talking about the motives let me touch on the remake real quick and then I want to bounce back so overall I was not a fan of the remake now I saw the remake when it came out I have not seen it since there has been a good bit of people looking back on that movie and reassessing it and saying huh that was actually one of the better remakes from the aughts uh, I mean, I rewatched it yesterday and I'm still not big on it. You know, I was kind of giving it a second chance because, again, I saw it a decade ago and I know I was drunk when I saw it at the theater. Yeah, that was like during the whole 3D craze. So they like tied in bullshit 3D to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that later. But at least with this one, the motive makes a little more sense because what you end up finding out is Harry Warden did snap and go crazy crazy dot 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 then he was murdered kind of vigilante parent uh nightmare on elm street style by like the sheriff and the owner of the mine and one of the other dads essentially the sheriff covered the whole thing up and it was this conspiracy of silence between them and so they know this can't be fucking harry warden because we fucking killed him <laughs> 10 years ago right so like this has to be something else that's interesting okay it's kind of the same thing where the killer ends up oh yeah i like saw the killing firsthand dot 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 my dad is one of the people who killed the guy and like his ghost is basically haunting me and i'm now crazy and thinking that i am the killer guy right it's still a weird roundabout explanation but it makes a little bit more sense as to what's going on i guess anyway let's move away from that so what about the 3d aspect no i'll talk about that in a minute <laughs> did though. the 3d hold up <laughs> so I'm fucking with you this movie was originally titled the secret which is like a weird dumb title and what does that have to do with anything right that's a bad title yeah but obviously like they changed it to my bloody valentine to kind of further capitalize on the holiday killer trend this movie was shot at the princess colliery mine in sydney mines nova scotia and that mine was shut down in 1975 and what still blows my mind because it's definitely again one of those things in the remake they clearly like shot on fucking sets they actually shot down in this fucking mine which it, dude it felt like, like it. you keep bringing up my claustrophobia 1000 fucking no percent would i ever consider like oh yeah i'm actually gonna go shoot my movie down in this fucking mine 2700 feet 
below the surface where we have to be strategic about the lights that we're using to avoid fucking fires from all the goddamn methane still down there like no thanks yeah so it's funny you mention that because i thought i thought the way this movie was going to end the Chekhov's gun was the methane buildup and like the abandoned part of the mine and an explosion and an sure. explosion like i really thought that but it didn't you know that was surprising and i kind of appreciated being surprised by that surprise surprise that's how the remake is yeah that <laughs> makes so much more sense but the thing i wanted to dig on a little bit more haha dig <laughs> so horror newbies this is about as scary as silent night deadly night i guess there are some fun jump scares i'd say they're more fun than scary the scariest jump scare is maybe when her body pops out of the fucking dryer and it's toasted over and like her eyes are all white and milky the only other like image that was kind of disturbing and like it was like oh that's a creepy image was when they're walking through the mine like trying to get out of it and they hear glass breaking in the distance and then like for a split second the camera cuts to the miner breaking like light bulbs yeah i guess to darken the mine which i wish they would explore that more because that plot point kind of gets dropped but like when he's walking just using his pickaxe to break all the light bulbs that was a pretty creepy image actually and you just hearing him getting closer and closer based off of how close the shattering glass is getting to them but beyond that i think it's pretty standard fair slasher territory so like if something like the original halloween or like silent night deadly night does scare you this one's gonna probably scare you too but this is one of those rare moments where like a movie might have made you more uncomfortable aaron than me because you have claustrophobia do you get any kind of unease when you're watching stuff that's in enclosed spaces like this i mean i do in the sense that I find myself unconsciously holding my breath a lot more. Right. And so it's something where I kind of have to like, once I kind of realize like, oh God, I'm shallow breathing and holding my breath a lot because it's kind of ramping up my anxiety a little bit. Like it does get to me in that sense, but literally nothing else about the movie bothers me. And frankly, I would have the same type of claustrophobia reaction just watching like somebody stuck in a closet, <laughs> right? Like or stuck under a bed. I would be like no i don't like it all right so that would be kind of the same could you imagine working on this movie and being down in those vines uh yeah no thanks at all on that note too shooting days were extra long because it took a fucking extra hour each way to bring all the cast and crew and equipment down into the fucking mine every day uh no thanks no thanks at all well and that was kind of a point it's funny in the movie because they make it seem like oh it only takes a couple minutes to go like hundreds yeah, of feet down zip, zip, in and out but yeah. like I wonder in reality how long that mineshaft cart to go from the bottom down to the mine would actually take. Yeah, who knows? This is also like something fucking ludicrous to me. And this is just like, of course, only movie making. The owners of this mine, as soon as they learn, oh, y'all want to fucking shoot here? Cool. They spent... I have read between thirty and $50,000 to clean and prep this mine for shooting. And then the production crew got there and were like, what the fuck? Y'all just totally cleaned this entire place up. We didn't need that. So then they go back in. And again, I have read between fifty dollars and $75,000 were then spent to paint and dirty up the fucking mine again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Womp womp. <laughs> While they were shooting the movie, the cast was never told the identity of the killer. Just to Ooh, keep everybody's that's, performances that's interesting. natural yeah. and there be some ambiguity, right? 
Now, Keith Affleck figured out, oh, I am the killer when they asked him to come in and get a fucking cast made of his arm that he cuts off, you know? So that's when he realized, oh, so the killer cuts his arm off at the end. Oh, well, that's me. I called him being the killer pretty early on in the movie, and I'm pretty, like, okay at guessing, like, twists in movies, but I'm not, like, you know, super good at it. But I think this movie does telegraph that in retrospect if you've watched just enough of these type of things i think you can guess that he's the killer pretty early on the thing that kind of i guess was the twist for me was why he was the killer yeah because what i was worried about going into this movie is like that it would be kind of more problematic towards women than it already is in that regard of it's almost a little bit incel behavior i was worried that the like killer's motivations were like something like that instead of like no it's it's surprisingly trauma Yeah, yeah it's very surprisingly not and frankly the remake even though it has some weird misogyny issues it's also not the like motivating thing there either and yeah. both movies have the like love triangle aspect to them yeah and uh, again that's what makes the character of axel like so fascinating to me i thought that would be like a motivating factor like the love triangle thing yeah and it's not again it's like he's two personalities yeah he's the minor and he's axel so that said you said you clocked the killer pretty easily in this original take just a wild fucking shot in the dark of who you think the killer is in and obviously like the characters are slightly different but like just if we know the basic characters tell me who you think the killer is in the remake because it's the laziest fucking oh we got to make it different this time though right so i'll i'll admit to you i read the synopsis for the remake okay so then you know who so it i is. know who it is it's very lazy yeah but we did it different this time yeah right? we just flipped Fuck and off. reversed it yeah like that's such yeah. a lazy remake thing it was kind of funny though that spoiler alerts for 2009's my bloody valentine is fucking jensen eccles from supernatural is the killer in that movie um which i thought was funny because that came out what in 2009 so that was at the height of supernatural's popularity oh yeah he was in supernatural full bore yeah so yeah this movie gets made like i mentioned paramount definitely hey we got to cut this fucking movie down the director george mahalka claims that eight to nine minutes of footage was cut for excessive gore and violence basically every death scene got some trimming done to it i read that he claimed harriet and mike's yeah death scene, like by the drill them get killed yeah got completely cut out and supposedly that footage has never ever actually been found yeah because like even in the uncut they're killed off screen you yeah. only see the drill like in them but it's really only been like three minutes that have been restored ultimately and like there might have been a few other minutes worth left but he's even said like it was probably just connective tissue character kind of stuff that's not that big of a deal the only one of note i would guess would be like douchebag who gets hung and his head comes off his kill yeah there might have been like more to that or something yeah but paramount said for years oh the footage doesn't exist it's all gone we don't have it there's no way you're ever going to see an uncut version of this movie Fast forward to 2002, you know, Lionsgate gets a hold of it. They put out like a special edition DVD, Blu-ray. Oh, the Blu-ray was in 2009, but same difference, right? And then Scream Factory also in 2020, like I mentioned earlier, they put out their uncut version, which again, Paramount said that footage doesn't exist at all in air quotes, but you know, whatever, there we go, here it is. Turns out it fucking does. Mahalka apparently believes that Paramount was so hard hard about the cuts you know because the movie was rated x by the mpaa and they had to trim it to get it down to r mahalka believes that this is partially due to the heat paramount 
got for the violence in Friday the 13th, as well as John Lennon's murder two months prior to this movie coming out. Okay. That it was just one of those we've talked about before with like, oops, Columbine happened, and then this horror movie came out a month later and tanked because nobody wanted to go see teenagers being killed. It was kind of the same thing where like people just didn't want to see violence, right? John Lennon's murder kind of shook everybody culturally to the core, and so like nobody wanted to go see anything with like a ton of violence and death. Like I mentioned earlier, the movie basically doubled its budget. It was a $2.3 million budget. It made 5.7. And like a lot of these other slashers, again, critically derided at the time as like just another slasher movie in air quotes. But it definitely stands out now as one of the best of that era and very unique for that era. Like we said, Harry Warden's a very specifically unique and identifiable killer. The setting is interesting. Like, I love the whole bleakness of the landscape and the weather in this Nova Scotia setting, right? It's interesting because the bleakness of everything, the mine, the landscape, the characters' outlooks, the fucking weather, everything in this movie is just bleak, which all kind of helps pump up that atmosphere of dread. The really interesting part is they all kind of unspokenly dunk on TJ for, like, leaving and then coming back. But, like, who the fuck wouldn't want to get out of there? Yeah, like, they're all kind of just stuck there anyway. Anyway. And Dave's even like, I want to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And then he gets boiled alive with hot dogs. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, yeah, they're all kind of stuck there. A, a different movie would have explored this. I don't know if it would have been a slasher movie, and I think it would have been overcrowded if they tried to go this route. But like, they do subtly hint that like they're all fucking mine workers as they're coming out of the mine. In one of the scenes, one dude is basically coughing his lung out, <laughs> yeah. and they just crack jokes about it. Y'all all fucking dying. Half of them are going to die from lung cancer. Yeah. I think I'm getting the black lung, Bob. That's what I thought, yeah. The other thing I like about the setting in general, there's no escape because there's nowhere to run to. There's nothing in this shitty town. There's nowhere to go. The town seems to be, like, mostly empty at night. It's a very small town. The sheriff is already, like, running around involved with this case trying to figure out what's going on. There's nowhere for you to go. So the fact that, hey, we just go down into the mine to party says everything. That there's literally nowhere else for you to go hang out. That you'd rather just go hang out at the rec room of your fucking workplace and then go down into the mine itself. Or you go all the time anyway is indicative of everything right like there's no escape there's nowhere to run to and that kind of isolation again adds to like the claustrophobic aspect that there's this whole town and there's still nowhere that's safe for you to be there's nowhere to go but it's also so much more intimate because everybody knows everybody this is a tiny tiny small town everything is completely open there's no anonymity there's no getting away from any of this which again is also why it's kind of mind-boggling what Axel's endgame is with all this because at the end of the day they call the insane asylum mental institution place that Harry Warden supposedly has been at and then they find out oh yeah they called us back turns out he died five years ago but their initial thought is like there's surely no way in this town anyone in this town could reenact these murders it has to be Harry Warden again exactly and that's the thing like again talking about Axel's motives what did he think he was going to do afterward how is he going to get away with this this town seemingly has 60 
60 people in it, right? So, like, what is your end game? Well, I think, again, that just goes to its slasher logic to him. Oh, totally, yeah. There is no real end game. That's what makes him even more disturbing as a slasher is when he turns into the miner. Everyone's fucked, except yeah. for maybe Sarah. Everyone is fucked, no matter how long you've been friends with him. Yeah, and that's kind of, again, like, going back to the remake, I guess it's really even the same thing with Silent Night, Deadly Night as well, where, like, these are larger towns, and there are way more people out and about, and so some of the deaths seem to be random and trivial because... There's just people that are in the way, you know, and Silent Night, Deadly Night and the remake of My Bloody Valentine both had that issue where like the town is much more of a town yeah, and there's a lot more going on and we're just seeing like a little piece of it, right? But what works so well about Black Christmas and Halloween, and I think this movie, again, is you're stuck. There's this small place. You can run away. You can get out of the house, but there's still nowhere for you to go. There's no like safety in that sense. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about Axel. We talked about some of the characters. Let's talk about TJ for a minute. So I think really the only positive thing I have to say about TJ is that Camaro is dope as fuck. Otherwise, he, he kind of sucks as a character all around, to be honest with you. Kind of. You know, I guess I have nothing against Paul Kelman at all, right? No. But I don't dig this character. Like I said earlier, like I think he's kind of a shitbird. You can tell like there's that resentment from the rest of the guys in the mine that the owner of the mine his son daddy's boy could just cut and leave and just come right back like everything's okay right well they try and make this character be like the fawns a little bit and he's not no not at all what's more ridiculous that fucking accent so yeah which you know he's got that canadian i don't know i can't really tell you hey we gotta get out of here down in the mine or that cravat that he's wearing right yeah during the party i swear there were moments that that he sounded Irish. And that's like why I made that joke at the very beginning of this episode. So he's British, but I think a lot of that, it is that weird, I'm British and I'm doing an American accent where I'm that's Canadian now. really hard. <laughs> but then he's trying to do Canadian. Yeah, I, I think that's like a lot of what it is. Well, and again, I feel bad for Hollis and what happens to Hollis because he's like the only one who still kind of goes up to bat for TJ, but he also seems like the spirit of the group, the heart of the group, because he kind of has good buddies with everybody in the group and like sure. the one who brings the situation down and is willing to like be tough when he needs to but also extremely loyal and caring and like let's have a good time with everybody it sucks that your character hollis you uh <laughs> gets fucking nail guns into the skull but yeah that's how it is in know, this movie everybody's hey. gonna die and ultimately too like i think the thing that i most appreciate about this movie and watching the documentary about folk horror and kind of having that in my brain already i really appreciated how well this movie executes i guess for lack of a better word the idea of the local killer urban legend yeah because there's so many movies that try to pull that off and it rarely works and this is one of the instances where the real life story that we learn about harry warden and how there was some fuckery that went into his whole predicament and that these other four guys all died and that harry warden and to cannibalize to stay alive was literally driven to cannibalism and barely survived and went crazy six weeks down in the mine like imagine being anywhere like that for six weeks right we talk about covid isolation and oof that's rough six weeks Stuck in a fucking mine shaft where it's you're your like dead friends, your friends. Yeah. yeah, that's that's tough. But yeah, like the flashback 
is pretty dope. Like, I love that the flashback is heightened in a weird sort of way. The lighting is weird. There's more canted angles. It's a little surreal. It's made to be this urban legend, surreal kind of thing, right? But I I like all of that. I like all that lore and backstory set up around this killer. Like, all that, to me, I think, works so well in this movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like we said earlier, it's really kind of mind-boggling, even though this movie, like, wasn't a runaway success, that they didn't still try to make a sequel knowing how this one ends like even a few years later there's no sequel george mahalka even apparently approached paramount in 2001 after the movie was kind of a bona fide cult classic and paramount was like nah we're good you know so it seems kind of weird that there wasn't a continuation of this story who knows maybe this will be like one of those legacy sequel things or a remake now, now it yeah. picks up 40 years yeah. later and oh there's a whole new generation now that's affected by this trauma and this killer and dot 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 there's something going on right the one-armed man the one-armed man yeah so something with the ending i really dig the ending of this movie because yes yet while it is kind of cliffhanger-esque and really feels like a franchise building ending I think a lesser movie would have ended with her being like showing the hand buried in the rubble and then the hand grabbing her and then it goes to credits and like her screaming and it goes to credits. Or the hand grabbing her and then turns out everything's okay. They hug, music, cut to credits. Yeah, yeah like either, either one of those. But I love how like the hand grabs her, is moving, she screams, and then it cuts over to him on the other side of the rubble, fucking carving his own arm off, like you said. Yeah. And then like <laughs> him slowly one-armed backing into the shadows of the mine shaft and the last thing you see is the miner light slowly fading and just hearing his voice yeah fucking manic crazy voice asking sarah to be his bloody valentine and saying him and harry warden will return and wreak vengeance on the town which that's fucking awesome and disturbing too and kind of super villain-esque and then just that maniacal laugh yeah. being heard going into the credits and then into the ballad of harry warden that, that's <laughs> such a good fucking ending i, I loved it so much the ballad of harry warden okay so let's talk remake real quick so the remake my bloody valentine you'll sometimes see it as my bloody valentine 3d was released in 2009 it was directed by patrick lucier lucier it grossed a hundred and twenty million dollars on a fourteen million dollar budget. Why wasn't there a sequel even to that? Because that is crazy successful, yeah, right? But it proves the staying power and impact of the original and horror this in remake general. Made that money because this was like a known quantity, yeah. right? You had all these fucking horror remakes during the aughts. This one made money, and I think that goes to show. The the lasting impact that that original has in people's minds and in pop culture that oh yeah sure yeah let's see what they have to do with this like nobody wants a texas chainsaw remake nobody wants a fucking nightmare on elm street remake but sure like i'll check out a fucking my bloody valentine remake and see what that's all about so this one like you mentioned earlier stars jensen ackles which i have heard his name pronounced so many times I heard eccles and ackles yeah i was jokingly yeah. calling him jimpsum eccles <laughs> My wife kept rolling her eyes every time I would say it. Jamie King, Kerr Smith, and our favorite, Tom Atkins. Yeah, baby. Oh, shit. He's in it? He's the fucking sheriff, yes. Oh, hell yes. Man, that's great. And he's every bit as old man grumpy Tom Atkins as you would expect. His death scene, spoiler alert, I guess, 
could have been so good. But that brings me to my next issue with this movie. The 3D? Are we finally talking about <laughs> There is too fucking much digital blood and digital body parts. And there's just too much CGI gore in this movie. And it sucks. <laughs> Tom Atkins literally gets the fucking pickaxe through the chin and out the mouth. And then he like yanks on it and like rips Tom Atkins entire lower jaw off. But it is the worst shitty Windows 98 CGI like jaw flying at the screen because it's 3D with all kinds of fake animated blood. If I remember correctly from when that movie was coming out, wasn't the trailer or whatever. It's in 3D. 3D now. Come and check it out. Oh, it was very much marketed, yes. But the way they showed that was he throws a throws pickaxe, pickaxe at the screen. Yeah, at like, you. Whoa. Is yeah. that also a kill? It is not a kill, but it happens. I, yes. Yeah, he like I figured. chucks it at the screen. There's lots and lots of that. There's lots of people throwing shit at the screen. Things poking out towards you at the screen. Yeah, Jamie King is a name I haven't heard in a while. Jamie King is a name that I like hear every like two hundredth movie, and I'm like, oh yeah, what happened to her? Oh yeah, she dot 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 disappeared. I don't know. Her doppelganger Margot Robbie is the one who took over i don't know i feel like jamie king was like the aughts margot robbie <laughs> basically but margot robbie's had a much better career yeah so yeah like i said it, lots of bad cgi digital gore that's the first big problem this movie is also very aggressively bland and visually ugly it switches to this nasty looking sov shit during the action scenes for the 3d it cuts to that really lo-fi kind of camcordery look. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. And then it switches back, but the entire thing just looks like a shitty TV show. So even when it switches back to a more filmic look, it still just looks like a shitty episode of a shitty cop TV show. So it's just an ugly, visually unappealing movie, even in that sense to watch. There is one exception. There is one very cool sequence, and I kind of like the way that they did it. As an homage, the scene where Harry Warden's walking down the mineshaft, smashing the light bulbs as he goes, right? And it's just kind of a cool, like, fuck yeah, hulking monster killer dude just smashing the fuck out of these light bulbs right they do that in this but it is after the like twist reveal that oops jensen eccles is the killer and so it's just him in his regular street clothes with the pickaxe and he is staring straight ahead hulking forward smash 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 in the light bulb but every time he smashes one it flashes to like him as harry warden in the full costume right and it's pretty fucking cool like that's, that's kind of cool moment where i was like okay that's fucking cool i also think it's a little bit of a mistake to pull him out of the miners outfit totally totally well it they pull this dumb shit where they don't even go into the mine until the last 10 minutes of the movie it's not even like a whole group of people it's literally just kind of these three main characters there's this stupid moment where the like sarah character ends up with the gun and she's got the gun pointed at both of them because the movie has been leading you to think it could be either tj or axel and then that's when they do the weak ash switch 
switcheroo. Yes. For the sake of right. the remake, trying to out twist the twist. And the other twist, twist, twist thing is, and, and hold on, let me back up, I guess. There's no group of guys. There's no group of worker dudes. The movie just ditches all of that. And so it's just kind of centering on Axel, who the character in this version like becomes the sheriff. He is the new sheriff and he is cheating on his wife with a like way younger girl and he gets her pregnant, but it's okay. Cause she dies. Right. Problem solved. Ah, damn it. <laughs> the fuck, Right. But then the TJ character leaves, right? He like left town for all these years after this initial giant killing spree trauma that they all lived through. And he comes back and is like, Oh yeah, no, I solely, own the mine now i'm going to sell the mine and he never really gives any distinct reasons for why he wants to do that but also everybody that works the mine is like fuck you buddy you're trying to destroy this town it's like i don't know i'm just selling the mine to other people we're not shutting down the mine you're still gonna have a job like the, every, the mine is still gonna be here i'm just selling it i don't want to fucking deal with it give me the money let somebody else do it and that whole like weird motivating thing is weird but the movie kind of tries to set up this idea that both the tj and axel characters are untrustworthy and they are and then you further find out axel calls around and it turns out oops the tj character has spent the last 10 years in an insane asylum bruh i'm so i'm not lying to you i zoned out like this this is so much more convoluted, minutes, right? Yeah, like this is so much more convoluted. They are overcomplicating a, such a simple premise. Exactly. But what I did find funny is during that reveal where which one of you is the killer? She's pointing the gun at both of them and you know at one point they're like shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. The fucking Axel character eventually is just like fuck it, shoot both of us. <laughs> <laughs> shoot both of us it may not be him but it's definitely not me shoot both of us fuck it and that's of course when he's like oh harry warden's right there he's right behind you and then you realize oh he's just seeing this ghostly vision and then it flashes back to all these moments where harry warden shows up and you realize oh it was actually him the entire time but it's dumb shit okay. like he locks himself in a closet kind of thing yeah and just it's fucking ludicrous yeah so all of that is really fucking dumb and way too convoluted and the weirdness at the end where again the sarah character and axel are like perfectly happy dot 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 we're gonna like ride off in the sunset together but it's like wait he was still cheating on you and got like another girl pregnant but that's just conveniently forgotten because oh that girl got killed yeah there's that weirdness <sighs> there is yep. zero holiday atmosphere to this movie at least in the original the whole town is done up for valentine's day the whole thing is revolving around Around the dance. Yeah, the lead up to the killer is leaving human hearts in a fucking Valentine. And that is literally <laughs> the only fucking thing that this new movie does is the gimmick of the heart and the box of chocolates, yeah. right? But there's no real any kind of indication this movie has anything to actually do with Valentine's Day. Okay. So, like, all <laughs> of that was fucking stupid. Well, I'm glad that we brought all this up so we don't have to watch the remake on a future episode. No. And that's the thing. Like I said, this is one of those arts remakes that a lot of people have been like, oh yeah, no, it's way better than it should be. It's way better than I expected. That doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. I'm sure it's still a fun movie, but like... In my opinion, I did not like it. I did not enjoy it. It did not live up to like the last several years of revisionist people going back and being like, actually, I still am not a fan. Something I was going to say anyway, regardless of if you're going to go in depth about the remake and why it fails for you, 
our discussion in general of this movie has made me really come around to I agree with you I think it's not generic it's a template because like I think there is a lot more going on in this movie than I originally thought just by us talking through it on this podcast and I especially now appreciate it because of the overcomplication of the remake yeah and that's why I like instead of remakes these days we're now getting these legacy sequels I prefer that because I think the odds especially the mid to late odds was all about the remake and more often than not those remakes fucking failed and missed the point entirely yeah whereas these legacy sequels seem like they absolutely get the point it's being made by the nerds who loved the original growing up and want to stay true to the original but also modernize it this is kind of going a little bit deeper into a conversation that we had with some of our other friends completely unrelated to any of this but with movies in general especially movies that have big giant epic stories right it's hard to find the right balance of having enough background context and lore and exposition and balancing that in a way where you have all the necessary context but you're not just stopping the movie cold to do a lore or background or exposition dump but also not over over complicating the movie at the same time like there is kind of a balance that you have to strike there and i think that's kind of what i appreciate about the idea of trying to do a legacy sequel and not all legacy sequels fucking work right there have been a few so far in the last couple years that just haven't quite clicked the way that they should right but i think what works is it's just enough of what you like from the original that you still will like the new thing the original serves as the context so guess what if you're 15 and you're watching the new Candyman and you're like, hey, what are they really talking about in this movie? Cool, guess what? You have a whole other movie that you can go watch that will give you the background and the context to explain everything. Yeah. But then on top of here's all the stuff that you already know and like, we're going to move the story forward and we're going to add new elements in and we're going to build on all of that, right? So I think doing a legacy sequel from that standpoint, I think works better because it's already a chance to revisit and get your hands back in the sandbox for the stuff you already know and like but then also gives you a chance to try to move all of it forward and kind of jumpstart things back into like a new path so it kind of gives you the best of both worlds in that sense and it's not just either rehashing exactly the same shit again like a remake does or just trying to slightly change everything from the original to be different enough that you can just say like oh but it's different this time see like we just switched who the killers are blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. you know i i would i'd like to see a continuation of this you know if we get another remake sure if you stick to the template and just really kind of heighten the style and the like overall filmmaking execution of it and the acting and you maybe get a really good writer on it and you just make a really fucking good slasher movie cool if you do a legacy sequel where it's like 40 years later fucking harry warden's back and cool do that too again get good filmmakers behind it get good writers behind it and i could be down with that so i think like this is one of those that has a lot of potential that was just never explored because they never bothered to do that right so I, i would like to see something continue and i think my only thing that i would want and this is where i was disappointed with the remake for real I just wish there was a rap version of the Ballad of Harry (laughs) Warden to play over the ending credits. Yeah. But otherwise, 
yeah, I dig this movie. think it's one of the better slasher movies from the early 80s when there was just like a huge glut of them in the wake of Halloween and Friday the 13th. This is one of the ones that kind of stands out and is unique, both story-wise, visually, everything else. And uh, again, it's just like, hey, here's another horror movie that you can watch on a very specific holiday. Enjoy. I will admit we uh, spent a lot more time than I was expecting talking through this movie, but I appreciate it because it kind of helped me reevaluate it from another lens. So, yeah. Cool. I think it's a great slasher. Well, glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I guess dot 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 going forward, we don't really have any other Valentine's (laughs) movies. So, cool. (laughs) We check this one off the list. Way to go. All right. Cool. Well, uh, I guess that's all we've really got for this week. So, you want to go ahead and take us out? Yeah. We are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, Derek, and my movie monster boy co-host Aaron um, in which we discuss fears and phobias and all that good stuff you can find our episodes at pretty much any of the podcatchers these days Apple Podcasts Podchaser Stitcher Google etc etc please rate and review us especially on Apple Podcasts Podchaser as well and actually on Good Pods feel free to review us on there too because we've been uh, topping some of the charts there which is awesome thank you for your support there yeah thanks you can catch us on our socials at watch if you dare on facebook and twitter please check out our spotify music playlist that is linked at the top of our twitter and also on our podbean website and our facebook for some spooky tunes uh we update it from time to time throughout the year and it's just music that's either influenced by movies or movies in general or just music that has a spooky creepy horror tone to it speaking of music shout out to your little brother jesse mansfield for the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode catch all his music at party gator and possums and big clown and all that good stuff on Bandcamp. like we always say as like fucking 20 music projects are there any new ones going on right now not that i'm aware of just the ones that you mentioned so yeah check out his music jesse mansfield do you have anything else to add aaron be my bloody valentine Daddy's gone.